You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus. dot com slash acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin. I take a probiotic. And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, "I cannot believe how young you look." And I thought, "Thank you, Ritual, for that." Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com/pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com/pantsuit for 25% off. Well, let me push back on one aspect of of your thought there about the unreasonableness of my proposal or the lack of pragmatism surrounding it, because for me. The compromise embedded in it is that I would just not worry about contribution limits. So, if you are allowed for whatever office you're running for to spend ten million dollars and you can get all that from one person, hooray for you! And then you can be done and you can actually go to work and do your job every day. And so, I think there are some incentives for lawmakers to do something like this. Now, can it be done before 2020? No. I don't know that much of anything could get done before 2020 that changes the shape of that race, and I don't know that it should because people are already in it. You know, we're already so far down the road. But I would like to see movement around a rethinking of all of this, starting with an amendment to the Constitution that allows us to rethink all of it. This is Sarah. This is Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. We are so excited that the tickets for the Nuance Nation stops in California are now on sale, and I'm going to be real with you; they're going kind of fast.、Uh, we are going to be in San Mateo, Northern California, on August 22nd, and in Thousand Oaks, Southern California, on August 24th. We are so excited. 
The part I'm most excited about is we're going to finally settle this California versus Kentucky debate. I spent every summer of my childhood in California. I've got some strong emotions and feelings. And so we're just going to we're going to walk through the pros and cons of each state. Kentucky's going to win. Is that how you envision it going, Beth? I have a different perspective on this mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this exercise, but that You're is how we're going to by the rocky coast and the the beautiful vistas. That's what this is. Don't be fooled. It's going to be fun. We're going to have a fun (laughs) chat. We're going to have some interesting guests. We're going to have lots of opportunities for questions. And we're really excited to meet you all. We also are really excited about Evolving Faith, which is just right around the corner. If you haven't gotten your tickets for Evolving Faith, check out the show notes and get a link there. We'd love to see you there with all kinds of spectacular human beings. I think it's just going to be wonderful out in Denver. So lots of things to get on your calendar. Let's dive into the news. Before our main section of the show, when we will be discussing campaign finance, hope you guys got to check out Friday's show on five things you need to know about campaign finance. And then, as always, we'll wrap up the show with what's on our mind outside politics. First with the news, Beth, have you heard the president is a racist? I don't have any more questions about that. I want to actually read the tweets if you're up for that. No, I think that's important. Yeah, I really don't understand the decision to, quote, tweets. They're short. You don't have to take two words at a time. There's only like 200 words total. And also, I just think that you have to get the full context of what he's saying instead of just having a reporter quote two words at a time and explain it to you. Anyway, so here is the actual tweet thread that everyone is talking about. He woke up really early in the morning on Sunday I don't know if he was, if he had a bad dream or what he's so upset about at 5 a.m. on a Sunday morning, but here's what he tweeted. So interesting to see progressive, that word is in quotes, Democrat congresswomen who originally came from country whose governments are a complete and total catastrophe, the worst, most corrupt, and inept anywhere in the world, if they even have a functioning government at all, now loudly and viciously telling the people of the United States, the greatest and most powerful nation on earth, how our government is to be run. Why don't they go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came? Then come back and show us how it is done. These places need your help badly, You can't leave fast enough. I'm sure that Nancy Pelosi would be very happy to quickly work out free travel arrangements. Okay. Here's something I thought a lot about over the weekend. Because you and I have made a pretty intentional decision to not react to every tweet from the president. Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time over the weekend reacting to these tweets from the president. Just in my mind. And I went through this whole analysis of like, is am I just wasting my life energy here? I will never get these moments back. And I decided that on this one, it's not a waste of life energy because the words in these tweets and the sentiments behind them are not an aberration in American culture. And I think when the Oval Office is inhabited by a person who doesn't even feel bad about putting this stuff out into the open— It is important for us to all stop and take stock of this and discuss how it impacts our communities because it does impact our communities. I actually can't think of anything more important than our willingness as Americans to look around us and see people who look different than we are 
and recognize that our country is not one particular skin color, as many people have pointed out, and it's so obvious it seems silly to say it. Three of the women that I think he's talking about here were born in the United States. Mm -hmm. And just the recognition that we still have so much racism embedded in the way we think about American citizenship, I do think is really important and is worth spending time and energy on. I will say what I have been encouraged about in this coverage is that most mainstream media are just saying, are just describing these as racist tweets. Instead of saying, this is what he said, many are calling him a racist, they're just, (laughs) they must be done. Or maybe this is just a line he finally crossed where everybody's comfortable saying, nope, this is just objectively, no matter how neutral your, your viewpoint is, this is racist. So in case it needs to be said, it's a racist trope. Um, to tell people to go back where they came from if they look different, American citizens of every nationality, of every ethnicity, of every religion, people who were born here get told that all the time. And the reason that they get told that is because it's racist on the most basic level to look at someone and decide because of the color of their skin, they weren't born in America. Like it's just the most basic definition of judging someone based on the color of their skin and deciding that they are not, that they are other and therefore less. Um, It's, it's so offensive. It's so hateful. And he has decided that this is a winning strategy. I will own my racism because I'm going to count on the white people of America to be more scared of the idea that we should decriminalize immigration, that we should offer health care to non-documented people. I really don't want to call them legal immigrants because I think that's offensive language. And he's betting that that's going to win. And so... You know, I think it's it's he's laying out plainly because we have a very plain choice to make. Is it more important that we protect our own, quote unquote, and be racist, that there are policies we hate so much that we will accept them and that we will we will stand on the side of those who defend them, even if they are overtly racist or if we will say no There's no place for racism in this country. You know, I'm going to be honest. I'm not hopeful. Our history doesn't have a lot of good examples of us looking our racist history, our racist policies, and our racist leaders in the face and saying, no. I pray every day we do it this time because he cannot make it more clear. He could not possibly make it more clear how racist he is and that he is banking on the fact And the entire Republican Party is supporting him. Nobody said a word except for Lindsey Graham. Aim higher. That's the best you got, dude. Well, and Lindsey Graham said that in the context of some very offensive things himself. So Lindsey Graham isn't aiming higher either. Give me a break. Right. So to either, you know, we all have to decide. You know, you have to decide if you voted for him this time or if you voted for him last time, whatever it is, wherever you live. You just have to decide, is there policies that are so important to me that I will ignore a president who is overtly racist? I, I don't know how to say it any other way. I think that's right. And I think it's possible that the next iteration will be him just embracing the word racist. Yep. 
and just telling us that, that it's okay to be racist. What's wrong with it? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I can see it unfolding as kind of a, a reclamation of where people were pre-Civil War. That feels like the trajectory of things to me. And I don't like to be dramatic or hysterical, but honestly, there's a point where you have to get dramatic because what he's doing is dramatic. It is a big deal for the president to say about members of Congress that they should leave this country. And then for his advisors to come out and say, well, read the whole tweet. He said they could come back. Oh, well, I feel much better now. I mean, are you kidding me? That The parsing of words here, especially applied to a person who does not parse words ever, who is not careful in any way about his language, is almost as offensive as the tweets themselves. You know, excusing what is truly inexcusable is also unacceptable. And I know there are lots of people in this country who feel that we have become too sensitive about comments like this. There is a threshold to me that is not debatable, and the president is in that threshold. He has crossed that line into what is not debatable here. And when you see him doing that, you understand why there is sensitivity for a whole host of things. How are you to feel in this country if you don't have white skin right now? How are you Mm -hmm. to feel looking around you wondering how many people also wish for you to go back where you came from? It's horrible. I'm so sorry to everyone listening who is looking around wondering how many Americans feel this way about them. And I'm sure what they'd say back to me is, I don't have to wonder. I know because of people Mm -hmm. being overt with me about it. And I'm so sorry and sick about that, too. I'm really getting to a place where if you are a political leader— who is saying to yourself, any version of what Paul Ryan said to himself, any version of, well, I have to be close to him because that's the best way to control him, you are on a fool's errand. Your ego is getting in the way of seeing clearly where we are as a nation. And you need to get honest about the fact that he is not going to be controlled. He is going to continue to pollute our country with this kind of nonsense. And enough is enough. How are you feeling about Paul Ryan and his book deal and coming out and saying he has no idea how government works and all this stuff? I'm disgusted by it. I can't think of anything more opportunistic than to quit midstream. If Paul Ryan thought he was doing the right thing, why didn't he stay there and keep doing it? But to quit midstream when he was doing what I believe was the wrong thing in propping this president up and then to make money off telling everyone what a child he is, it grosses me out. It takes everything I ever thought about Paul Ryan, everything I ever believed about his personal integrity, and and just erases it. And I don't mean to be lacking in grace for folks, but here is someone who had a real opportunity to make a difference. He had a real chance, and he decided that reforming the tax code was more important to him, and I'm putting reforming in the biggest air quotes you've ever seen, then ensuring that we don't have a president who talks about other human beings like this and then makes money off the whole thing. I just I don't have a lot of space around this. And I hope that Paul Ryan at some point in his life reflects very much on how he had a chance to do better. And he failed miserably. I just didn't have a lot of respect or grace for Republican leaders to begin with and the teeny tiny amount I had left is gone. I mean, you don't even hear from anybody, even the moderate saying, 
this is unacceptable. Just radio silence on him telling Congress people, American citizens, women, women of color to go back where they came from. It's disgusting. It is disgusting. And you know what? Again, I just hope that people look at the fear mongering going on surrounding the Democratic Party. Oh, they're socialists. They're communists. They want to give it all away for free and just understand, like, you are falling for it. You're falling for it. I was listening to a podcast, and the guy was talking about the history of the United States and these battles that we've gone back and forth in. And he basically said, you know, the the reality is from the 1870s, poor whites have said, I would rather bargain away any possibility or opportunity I have than risk that something go to black people outside my tribe, outside my group, black and brown people. I'd just rather suffer the consequences than in any way, shape, or form align myself or risk that they could succeed or rise in the societal ranks of this country. I mean, that's the bargain we've struck. And that's the bargain he's exploiting. And it's just, we have to look it in the face. We just have to own it and say, this is what's happening. This is the power play. He could not make it more obvious. And he didn't do it because it hadn't been, you know, he's not been successful because he invented it. He's been successful because it's been festering and manifesting for over a hundred years. And we all tried to tell ourselves that we wouldn't go back and it's not like that and it's about more than race and it's about socioeconomics and on and on and on. But when push comes to shove, we have a president who is absolutely 100% comfortable in saying something as racist as, why don't you go back to where you came from? I mean, that is the ugliness that was being shouted to the Little Rock Nine to Martin Luther King, like it's to Ruby Bridges. It's so foul. It is so foul. And I think it's important to recognize you do not have to embrace the politics of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to want her to be treated with respect and dignity and not to face these kind of smears. You don't have to agree with Rashida Tlaib and the way she talks about this president. It is not an endorsement of any particular Mm -hmm. ideology or human being to say racism is unacceptable and this kind of blatant racism. This is divorced from policy. These tweets had absolutely nothing to do with policy. So your reaction doesn't need to have anything to do with policy either. And I understand the frustration on the part of some Republican lawmakers, there's a there's a hint of this in a lot of this sort of behind the scenes political reporting that we read. There's a, there's this sense that like, OK, well, I condemn them. And then I get 3000 comments to my tweet telling me that, oh, you big man, you can send a tweet. Is that all you can do? You know what I mean? I understand that it feels like it's never good enough. But like it's not about you every day as a public servant. And even if the reaction that you get is a really hard one and one that hurts, imagine, again, what it feels like to be on a on a bus or in a Starbucks or in a library and just looking around thinking, how many other people feel this way? 
Like, you can handle the criticism if you're an elected official. If life has given you all of the benefits that it must have to get you in that seat, and we're going to talk more about that a lot in our second segment, then be strong enough to at least use your voice, even knowing that it's going to invite a truckload of criticism attached to the way that you've used it. And let me tell you what I'm done with. I'm done with, I support him. I mean, I don't like everything he does. Like, he has passed the point where you can compartmentalize his bad behavior and tell yourself that supporting the president is fine because of X, Y, Z. If you're a person out there who considers yourself not prejudiced, but supportive of his tax policy, and I'm not talking about Republican leaders, I'm talking about the average person. If you want to tell yourself, well, I support his immigration policy, or I support his tax policy, or I support the way he is deregulating the government, whatever it is, you don't get to put the racist stuff and the rapist stuff in a box and say, I don't like all of it. I don't like the way he acts on Twitter. We're past that point. It doesn't work anymore. He's the president of the United States, and he's telling United States Congresswomen to go back to where they came from. We're, we're not, we're not going to play that game anymore. You don't get to put it in a box and act like it's separate. I'm done. It's unnecessary, too. Like, you can hold some really conservative viewpoints and find – I mean, people who could represent you effectively without this kind of behavior are a dime a dozen. Like, there are other candidates who could be the president and effectuate the policies that you care about if that's where you are. I always say in the corporate context when I'm talking to leaders about communication that what you say matters so much less than what people believe your intention is. And I think the president constantly reveals his his intention on Twitter. And so for me, there's a point where the intention is the substance. That is how we can evaluate people for these offices. So I'm not telling you the only thing you can do in your life to be a good, ethical, non-racist person is be a Democrat. What I'm saying is this blind loyalty to a person who is driving our country into a moral pit is unnecessary for you to still have a place in this country. The vice president and a number of members of Congress visited the southern border, and there has been a lot of footage, very graphic pool reports of what they saw coming out. I don't know if you read Sarah Politico published a, a pool report from one of its reporters who were who was in one of the facilities that the vice president toured. It was extremely hard to read. It talked about the smell of the place and the conditions of the people in it, how there wasn't even enough room for people to lie down. They had been there for sometimes 40 days, that folks were going 10, 20 days without a shower. And the images of the vice president in particular in one of those facilities circulating social media, I just looked at them and I thought, this is going to be in textbooks eventually yeah. as a representation of what America was in 2019. And I am so deeply ashamed of it. Yeah, I think that, you know, you remember those historical photos where the leaders showed up at these places and saw the inhumane conditions and then defended them. I mean, that's exactly what he's doing. And it's so disheartening and it's so 
gross. You know, the conditions at the these places are gross, but to stand there in your blazer and say, yeah, we're doing a great job is it's just mind-blowing. The other thing I thought a lot about as I watched this coverage, so the president doesn't control directly how many people are trying to get into the country, how many asylum seekers exist. He doesn't control the conditions in the Northern Triangle, where a lot of these folks are coming from. He doesn't make the law about what's legal and what's illegal. There is a decision that belongs to the administration about whether we detain people because people commit crime. So if you accept the premise that under our existing law and you think our existing law is correct, that entering the country illegally is a crime. And there's, I think, important debate to be had about that. And um, Julian Castro, for example, is leading that debate. But let's just accept the premise. That is the law today. Let's say that's a just law. All right. Now, people commit crime all over the United States every single day and are released pending a hearing. The decision to detain these folks is a choice that the administration is making, that they don't have to make. They're making the choice, they say, because they don't like this idea of catch and release, which I just think is an awful term. But that people are arrested for illegally crossing into the country and then released and then we lose them. That's not necessarily the state of things either. Like we have really good data about really cost effective programs to keep up with people once they've come into the country. We have really good data about the very high percentage of people who show up for their court dates when they're working with one of our organizations that knows how to do this. And so this idea that like, well, this is a crisis and our facilities are so overwhelmed and we need lots more money to do this. Actually, we could spend lots less money and not have created these conditions for other human beings. And based on the data that I've seen, do a better job tracking who's here in the United States and who is not. I'm just so disheartened because both the vice president and the second lady and Senator Lee from Utah portray themselves as so driven by their faith. And I don't know how as a person of faith who presumably over the course of their lives have heard the phrase, how you treat the least of these and walks into a massive room with people in cages, even if they're adult men and say, this is care all Americans would be proud of. I'm not proud of it. I don't like seeing people in cages. I don't know how to say that any more plainly. And I don't care if they're 25-year-old men or five-year-old children. I don't like seeing people in cages. It is not representative of my values as an American or a person of faith. Well, I'm not proud of the facility that Mike Pence wanted us to look at either. You know, the non-caged facility, the one he said that was taking such good care of children. I'm not proud of that one either. Sorry to interrupt you. No, it's okay. I just, you know... The idea that you would wrap yourself in faith in the way that these people have and has, have made it a part of their political branding. Because make no mistake, that's why they sent the Pences. That's why they sent these two people who are so representative of white evangelicals and who speak so openly of their faith. Oh, we're going to send the good Christian vice president and his wife down there to show you that we're not monsters. 
That's what this was. There's been a whole concerted effort by people in the evangelical world to keep the evangelical voting block in line on this issue. And several listeners have shared with us examples of newsletters that have gone out um, explaining the Trump administration's position on this and why that is godly. And I have so many questions for those people. And and I wish that I had an opportunity, honestly, to spend more time with some of that leadership and just talk through it because I'm, I'm just hurt. Jen Hatmaker said, you know, on Twitter that this has just broken her heart into a million pieces and she'll never get over it. And that's really how I feel, too. I mean, I think that in addition to the damage that's being done to these individual lives, to the entire fabric of our country, to the government employees who are having to carry out some of this stuff, mm-hmm. even the people who are doing their very best work from places of such good intentions in their hearts, the damage that's being done to them in this process. You know, we're creating essentially combat veterans in the folks who are working in these facilities right now. And the damage that's being done to the church and spirituality and to a faith that has been on the wrong side of history way too many times and had a chance to get it right this time and is refusing refusing to do that, um, it's it's all just devastating to watch. And it's so hard to feel like you're not doing enough every day. I told Chad, you know, if we lived in Texas, I know what I would do. Sitting here in Kentucky, other than giving money to organizations who are sending lawyers to help, I don't know what to do. And I hate that feeling because I do think this is how our generation is is going to appear in the arc of time. And it it it's just so wrong on every level. Again, you can have beliefs about immigration that are very stringent. And still say, we don't treat other human beings like this. You know, I'm not hopeful of much sometimes these days. But I know this. And I don't think many of them listen to this podcast. But let me just put this out into the world. The leaders of the evangelical movement who have aligned themselves politically in a way that alienates women that alienates the LGBTQ community, that alienates brown and black people, those chickens will come home to roost. They already have, and they will continue to. You know, my favorite Jesus is the one that flips the table, who says, no, there's no room for this here. And you might play these games and you might think they're working for you now. Maybe they are, but they will not work forever. You are doing permanent damage that will take down your institutions, that will take down your churches, that will take down your careers. I believe that. I believe that. They already have and they will continue to. You do not get to sell out faith and Christianity without consequence forever. I just don't believe in, I don't know what you want to call it, the laws of nature, karma, whatever. I just think they will suffer the consequences of these decisions. I really believe that. I think they already are. What I want to ask of everybody 
and myself, I think about this all the time, is just to recognize to the best of our ability when we are being sold to false choices. So Mm -hmm. this is what the president does with these racist tweets. He says, your choices are to love me without criticism or to be aligned with socialists who don't love our country. And that's just those are that's those are not the only two options available to us. And the vice president in visiting the border tried to frame his visit as you either support the men and women who work for our government in these facilities or you believe that our country should be taken over by gangs from other countries. Those are not the only two options available to us. The Trump administration is so skilled at offering false dichotomies. The Republican Party, unfortunately, has decided that its path forward is offering up false dichotomies. And we have to reject that, whatever policies you prefer. We have to reject being treated like we are not wise enough to see other paths. They keep narrowing what it is that we're allowed to choose between. And that is not democracy. Beth, who do you want to compliment on the other side this week? We've had Tabitha Eisner on the podcast twice now. She ran for Congress in Alabama, and she shared over the weekend a story that was published in um, an Alabama newspaper about her public records request to get information about the way that Alabama administers the death penalty. So under open records laws, Tabitha requested information about the death penalty administration. How exactly does this happen? What have their results been? Alabama's Supreme Court has allowed state officials, despite open records laws, to ask citizens making these requests why they are requesting the information that they are. That in and of itself seems highly problematic to me. But the impact of that is illustrated so clearly in Tabitha's case. So on the form that she filled out, she is an ordained minister, and she said that she is seeking these records because she wanted to pray about the information. She was deposed, like full-fledged, hours-long deposition over her need to pray about the death penalty in Alabama. She was asked very personal questions about her family, about her faith, about her understanding of scripture, about donations that she's made to Planned Parenthood that the lawyer examining her said must be inconsistent with her respect for the sacredness of life. She was probed in ways that you cannot even imagine. It is shocking to read the transcript of this deposition, which I will link in full for you in the show notes. But this is what a citizen who was just asking for information that we are, as citizens in a democratic society, entitled to, was subjected to. And I was so proud to read the way that she responded to those questions. I'm so proud of her continued advocacy work. This deposition took place in 2018. And I'm so happy that this information is being shared in a public space so that people can understand the attempts to shield government from real accountability. And so thank you, Tabitha, for putting yourself and your family through this to try to do important work in society. And and not even in, in society, but just to like be a responsible citizen to whom the government is accountable. So I am complimenting the Trump administration. President Trump signed an executive order 
on kidney disease. That is one of the first changes in policy in several decades. A shortage of kidneys um, available for transplant kills an estimated 43,000 people every year. And so the, this administration policy change makes it easier for living donors to give kidneys and other organs. It promotes the donation of organs from deceased people, and it restructures payments for healthcare providers to reduce the rate of kidney failure in the first place. This is really positive change. It's the, like I said, it's the first presidential action on this area in over 46 years, and I just wanted to compliment that. Next up, we are going to continue our exploration of campaign finance and today give you some of our own thoughts about how this system is and isn't working. We're going to take a quick break and we'll come right back. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi-connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantsuit. So on Friday, we spent a lot of time walking through the basics and the history of campaign finance. We talked about spending limits. We talked about contribution limits. We talked about where we've come, what role the Supreme Court played in that, and where we are now. So if you haven't listened to Friday's episode, please go back and listen. I think it will help provide valuable context for the discussion we're about to have, which is, okay, we know how we got here and where we are. Do we like it? Do we like where we are with the flow of money into politics? Most Americans say no. I was trying to put into really concrete language what it is that I don't like. So here's what I came up with, Sarah. I think we have a real and perceived lack of independence in our representatives. I think we have a sense that fundraising is more important than actually governing and serving the public once you're in office. I think money is a critical barrier to public service for lots of people who would be really good public servants. And I think we have a a transparency issue that so much of the information that we're receiving right now on social media, on television, even in print, comes from a place and we can't identify the real source. And so those are my bullet points about what problem we're trying to solve in any efforts to reform campaign finance. What have I missed? I think one of the biggest issues for me is that for so long, particularly with regards to the Supreme Court, we are looking at the problems you just listed. We're talking about money and politics, but the obsession at particularly the Supreme Court level, is with quid pro quo corruption. Oh, it only matters is if, only thing that matters is if you give money to a politician and then they promise you a contract. This very this for that exchange. And what it misses is all the ways that what we really have is an influence corruption, right? It's who's influencing the process and what role is money playing in that. And because we're obsessed and by we, I mean the Supreme Court, with this quid pro quo corruption. And if we don't have that, then we can't limit freedom of speech at all. And money is speech. And so we've tied ourselves in this knot. While the rest of us can see that it's about way more than quid pro quo and that we have this influence on the system in the ways that you just described, the influence of money in preventing people from running for office because it is so expensive because it requires you to basically take time out of your life. Um, The influences of money once you're in the system, because you have to have so much money. I don't think it's a decision that fundraising is more important that Congress people make. I think it is an acknowledgement that you have to have that amount of money to run. And I think it is the influence of outside groups who can come in through those nonprofit channels we described on Friday and push the debate in more extreme ways than is representative of the American public and where they stand on an issue. You see that with abortion. You see that with immigration. You see that with so many issues when an outside group 
has influence when not even an outside group, when two people with extreme views, the Koch brothers have extreme libertarian views. And they can come in and influence the system in a way that no other sort of average American can do. And so I think you see that that current currency of influence running through our system while the Supreme Court interprets our Constitution to say all we care about is quid pro quo. And so we can't have a spending limit and we can't have any contribution limits. And so in a way, it's like we have our hands tied to really address the the problem of influence. I agree with all of that. I think as I was formulating kind of how would I start to attack this problem over the weekend, and I shared the questions that I try to walk through anytime we have a problem like this on Instagram. But as I was thinking about it, I realized that I I, I still have hard money problems. You know, I think a lot of the debate right now is centered on soft money and dark money, and I have problems there too. But I also continue to have problems with hard money because I do think that our elected officials, once they're in office, the incentive is to just continue to build the war chest for the next campaign or for others in the caucus. And so I think both pieces need to be worked. I was also thinking about all of this momentum around a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United, but I think the problem is more fundamental. I think the problem is really that sense going all the way back to Buckley versus Vallejo that money is embedded in the First Amendment somewhere. I think I would be happy with a constitutional amendment that just says money is not speech. Because I really do believe that spending limitations would get us so much farther than contribution limitations. I agree. When I looked at all the ways that the other that other nations and I, you know, I understand the point you're making that we are not all the same and countries deal with elections different. They have parliamentary systems and I get all that. But I, you know, it's like that quote, money's like water. It's going to find a way if we don't deal with. You know, we can we can spend the next 50 years dealing with the way that we contribute to political campaigns or (laughs) we can find a much easier solution that I think the majority of Americans would be perfectly happy with, which is spending limits. And it's not just to me that does not just get at the role of influence and the role, role of money in politics, spending limits, limiting the sort of the way campaigns are run, the ability of campaigns to take over our public airways, it it gets to the role of politics in our culture. It lowers the stake. It takes there's so such interesting reporting about like the way elections feel in Germany and the way elections feel in Britain. And to say to say, hey, it's going to be for this amount of time and we're going to really limit the role of campaigns in our culture, in our society, in our lives. Because who is happy with the current state of things when every election is the end of the world and every election stretches on and then president has now filed for a re-election the day after inauguration? Like, is anybody happy with how campaigns go right now? I don't think Congress people are. It's exhausting, especially if you're a House member. I mean, if we could, I think spending limits get so, at so much of that. It gets at the influence of money, it gets at the role politics plays in our world. I think it is a really 
good solution. I think it is a big lift considering the Supreme Court decisions, but I do think it's the right direction. Yeah, I don't think that we get spending limits without a constitutional amendment. And I'm here for that. I think that would be a worthy constitutional amendment. And I have a proposal I want to share with you about spending limits in just a second. So on the hard money side, I feel like we're we're going to be pretty aligned about how you attack this problem. I'm getting stuck in figuring out the soft and dark money side. And I would like to ask for your help on this in my thinking because – The framework of issue ads versus candidate ads does seem to me to be useful, even though it has led to a place that we all think is horrific. When I think about, you know, the sort of Americans for Prosperity advertising, and and I'm just picking a group that comes to mind because of the 2016 election and how much money that group spent, but there are lots of examples all over the ideological spectrum. So the airwaves get flooded with these commercials, they all seem to hire the same guy with the ominous voice to tell us how terrible everything is. The imagery is really dramatic. It's terrible. And when you start Googling who paid for this, you know, it says paid for by, and you Google it, it's just a dead end. You never get to individual names. So that's a problem. I totally agree. I struggle, though, because I don't want to limit issue advertising that is really healthy and productive for our democracy. And I don't want to be in a state where I say, well, I don't like issue advocacy around the time of elections, or I don't like issue advocacy by certain groups, or I don't like it when it takes this format, but I love it when Nike rolls out an ad that involves equal pay, right? Or I love it when I don't know, half the Super Bowl, you could make the argument that those ads are issue ads, right? Everything is pretty political right now and will continue to be, I think, for several years. And I do think there's a free speech component there. And I don't think taking corporations out of that discussion is the right thing to do in a free society or nonprofits or anyone else. And so I'm getting stuck in how to regulate that stuff because I feel like the line between what we want to stop and what is actually just healthy and democratic is is so fuzzy. I got a great solution. I don't care what kind of corporate issue advocacy you should do, but don't funnel it through a nonprofit and call it charity. Pay taxes on that money. And if you want to spend it on politics, that's fine with me. You want to run every yeah. ad till the end of time? Fine. Pay taxes on it. Because what I'm not fine with is me subsidizing your political advocacy. Because every time you say tax deductible, say tax subsidized, because that's what it is. You make money, millions and millions and billions of dollars off public infrastructure, off the safety of our public spaces, off the public, period. And then you take those profits. You don't pay taxes on them. You funnel them through a nonprofit. You call it charity, and then you beat me over the head with your political opinions. Nope. I'm going to hard pass on that. I'm going to really hard pass. You want to do it? Fine. Pay taxes on it. Okay, so this is so great because when I was talking to Chad about it in the car this weekend, I said to him, the only solution I can come up with is that no organizations get to be tax exempt anymore. And I think that might be the right answer. And Chad was like, "Um, that is a big lift. (laughs) And I said, I know. But like for for lots of reasons unrelated to campaign finance, I have a hard time with tax deductible and tax exempt organizations right now. 
But I think that that might be the way here. That plus some kind of disclosure requirement. Like, I think we might be at a place where if you run a promoted ad of any kind, so a promoted tweet, promoted Facebook ad, um, something on television, a, a print ad, there should be a link that takes you to a website that follows that money down to individual names, whether it is yeah. your top 10 shareholders or the top 10 shareholders of the corporations that hold those shares. What, like Whatever it takes, you trace the money back to individual names. Because I think the games that are being played the, with how this money gets into PACs and super PACs in these 501 organizations are, are the problem. So I've been listening to a really great Vox podcast called Future Perfect, and the season two is about the role of charity and private foundations. The best part is it's funded by the Roosevelt Institute. Um, but they talk about a lot of things. They talk about um, trust in perpetuity, the fact that you would have this money and you would have people from the 1960s deciding what they think society should look like in perpetuity. Like there was this one in um, a really rich part of Northern California. I can't remember. And this woman set up this trust to help the people in this county, the poor people in this county. Well, there's only one problem. There ain't any poor people in that county. It's like one of the richest counties in California, if not the country. And this, it was oil and gas money. So it ballooned. It's this massive amount of money that they're pouring in to this rich county um, because this woman could write it into a trust. Or they talk about dark money. They talk about, they even talk about PTOs and how is it right that you can do private fundraising tax deductible to prop up one school and not another school in the same district. And during the um, discussion on, on private foundations, these gifts in perpetuity, this woman read it, a quote from Thomas Jefferson. It says, whether one generation of men has a right to bind another seems never to have been started either on this or our, our side of the water. But between society and society or generation and generation, there is no municipal obligation, no umpire but the law of nature. We seem not to have perceived that by a law of nature, one generation is to another as one independent nation is to another. On similar ground, it may be proved that no society can make a perpetual constitution or even a perpetual law. The earth belongs always to the living generation. Every constitution then and every law naturally expires at the end of 19 years. It is to be enforced longer. It is an act of force and not of right. Really interesting coming from this forefather that we all put up as, you know, almost above reproach. And I, he, but I read it and I'm like, yes, I just feel like money and these laws and these foundations and the nonprofits and the trust and the way you have these citadels of wealth that decide without transparency, without any sort of democratic regulation, it's it's wrong. It's wrong that you should be able to control the world because you're rich, because we've set up these tax havens for you, because we've made laws that say that your wealth can exist in, per, in perpetuity influencing things. Like, it's anti-democratic. And I certainly don't think it should be subsidized by tax dollars. I think it's time to have a hard look at the way tax-deductible or tax-exempt organizations play a role in our society and particularly a role they play in campaigns. Before we move on to proposed solutions here, let's just be honest about the fact that any proposed initiative to change campaign finance law is going to hit a great big roadblock in the form of Mitch McConnell, who currently controls what makes it to the Senate floor. So Mitch McConnell, as we mentioned on Friday, 
before he became a senator, had a very different perspective on campaign finance than afterward. And in his memoir, he wrote, I never would have been able to win my race if there had been a limit on the amount of money I could raise and spend. Okay. Appreciate the honesty. There's some good self-awareness. If you've been listening to Embedded or if you followed Mitch McConnell's campaign finance career, uh, you know that he frequently likes to say when people say there's too much money in politics compared to what? And he'll say, we spend more on potato chips in America than on in politics. And he has this whole thing. And so we thought as Kentuckians, we might be able to offer a unique compared to what perspective. So in 2016, campaigns spent $6.5 billion, presidential plus congressional races. In 2018, just on the congressional races, $5 billion was spent. So thinking about that $5 million compared to what, let's just talk about Kentucky. Kentucky cut higher education by $78 million this year from its budget. The Kentucky Infrastructure Authority will spend $77 million this year. The total general fund for Kentucky's Department of Education is just over $4 billion. So Mitch McConnell says there isn't too much money in politics compared to what? Well, more money was spent on the 2018 congressional races than for all of education in all of Kentucky in an entire year. Let's talk about just what is spent on McConnell's races, because in his 2014 election, Mitch spent $30 million to keep his seat. Our per capita GDP here in Kentucky is $41,463. In 2018, Governor Bevin's budget for our state cut 70 programs in Kentucky. And just to give you the flavor of those budget cuts, one of those programs was the Kentucky Commission on Women, which works on things like promotion of economic opportunities for women and also things like human trafficking. That entire program was gutted from the budget at a price tag of $225,000. So Mitch McConnell can say that this is not a lot of money, but here in our home state of Kentucky, $5 billion is a lot of money that would do amazing good. Now, of course, we're comparing a number over the entire United States to one state, and this doesn't prove anything, except I think that Mitch McConnell has been circulating for so long among a donor class that is completely disconnected from the needs of the state that he's supposed to serve that I do not value his perspective anymore on whether there is too much money in politics. I mean, I love his little compared to potato chips bullshit, because that's what I'm going to call it, is bullshit. I mean, the reality is he outspends his opponents almost two to one. The only one who got close was Bruce Lunsford, who also spent the most and was independently wealthy. He uses money to access power. That's why, and it's the only thing he's got. He doesn't have charisma, particularly at the beginning of his career. He had no access to networks or resources. It was an incredibly unpopular time to be a Republican, particularly in Louisville, where he started his political career. And so not only does he use money to access power in Kentucky, but to access power in the Senate. So he raises money for other candidates, other people within his party, doles that out and gains influence and then stands there and does the thing I was talking about before, which is, well, there's no quid pro quo. 
you know, if you again, if you listen to Embedded, there's this moment where he talks to John McCain on the floor when McCain is pushing the McCain-Feingold bill and says, well, if we're worried about corruption, who's corrupt? I truly wish, and I think John McCain didn't do this because he had respect for the institution, and I appreciate that. I wish that he'd seen Mitch McConnell as the threat to the institution that he is, and I wish he'd looked at him in the face and said, you're corrupt. You're who I'm talking about. You're the one who took in the Republican caucus and said, if you vote against the tobacco industry, you won't get any money from them. If you vote against the t- or for the tobacco industry, I can promise you donations. And, you know, one of the things I talked about before is that it's not just that corporate influence comes into politics. It's that something else I think that, you know, it's, it's kind of a weird thing to talk about as somebody who's <laughs> doesn't particularly care about corporate interest or in defending them. It also goes the other way. Then you basically have corporations being shook down by politicians was exactly what Mitch McConnell did. He said, I defended you tobacco industry and now you better pony up to the point. There is literal email records of them going, I couldn't get squeezed any tighter by Mitch McConnell at this point. I mean, it's just so gross. He is for, he is for sale. He is for sale. And the idea that it's just a basic arithmetic and if we spend more as a country on potato chips, what's the big deal? It's not what's being spent. It's who's be, who's spending it. It's so disingenuous. Ugh. Let's talk about what the Democrats introduced in January, H.R. 1, as we promised on Friday. And then I would like to run my proposal for campaign finance reform by you, Sarah. Okay. H.R. 1 was introduced on January 3rd, very first bill of the year by John Sarbanes, a Democrat of Maryland. It covers, it does a bunch of things. It covers campaign finance, government ethics, and voting rights. And on campaign finance, among other things, it introduces voluntary public financing for campaigns, matching small donations at a six-to-one ratio. It puts stricter limits in place on foreign lobbying. It requires super PACs and other dark money organizations to disclose their donors. It restructures the Federal Election Commission to reduce partisan gridlock. It reduces that commission from six members to five, requiring that no more than two can be members of the same political party. And it expresses support for a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United. It's also designed to make running for office more accessible, allowing candidates to treat costs for health insurance, care of children and other dependents, and expenses required to maintain a professional license or certification as campaign expenditures. So H.R. 1 has some good stuff in it. My feeling is it's kind of snipping around the edges of these problems instead of getting to a fundamentally different system. I listened to an interview with Elizabeth Warren on the weeds with Ezra Klein, and he asked her, what's the first thing you're going to do when you're president? Are you going to, do you believe you only have this honeymoon period and you have to focus all your efforts? And she said, I don't believe that, but I, I believe that if we, that I have to focus all on one thing and basically put all my cards and then just watch the momentum die throughout my presidency. She's like, but I do believe that we have to start with the right thing in order to get everything else done. And her big thing was we have to start with corruption. We have to start with the flow of money and lobbyists through pol- in politics. And like, if we don't start there, if we don't knock the system on its feet, because everybody says, oh, all these presidential candidates have such good proposals, but who cares if Mitch McConnell's 
still in charge. Well, first of all, hopefully Kentucky will be sending a new senator, Senator Amy McGrath, to Kentucky or to the Senate. But if he is still in charge, it's not Mitch McConnell, supervillain. It's Mitch McConnell who uses these corrupt systems to his benefit. And so if we could work on public pressure to pass this campaign finance reform, to deal with the corruption and the the corrupting influence of money in our politics through legislation like this. I think she's right. I think we would have a lot more ability to deal with other big changes or big problems that we're facing. But, you know, for better or for worse, Kentucky has to decide that we're not for sale because we care so much about abortion or we care so much about immigration because we're so close to the border. I mean, I just feel like people know this. It's not a secret. He hasn't made it a secret that he thinks there needs to be more money in politics, but he gambled on the fact that I can say that openly because all else I have to talk about is scary Democrats and abortion and I'll still get elected and it's worked. And so until the citizens of Kentucky decide that they don't want a representative in the United States Senate that has been bought and paid for, which he most certainly has, then, you know, the rest of the bricks of this wall can't fall. And I really wish they would. I really wish we would decide that we care. You know, I was talking to a relative who's conservative and she was very concerned with term limits. I don't care about term limits. I don't think they work. But dang, let's just Let's find a compromise. Sure, let's do term limits. If we could do campaign finance reform and compromise by including term limits, like I feel like that's a thing that would make every American happy. If we stood up and said, if the next president stood up and said, I want Congress to pass, which, fun fact, Donald Trump said that was his number one priority on day one was term limits. Where'd that go? Um, if the, that person said, we want campaign finance reform and term limits, I feel like where would they go? Where would they hide? It would be such a, if you oppose that, it would be such a naked play for power. How could, with enough public pressure, could anybody, any representative stand in the face of that? Yeah, it's just mounting the public pressure that I think is tricky. I really believe that if you sat down and talked to most Americans of all ideologies, you could get compromise on campaign finance, term limits, and ranked choice voting. I think those three things together would drastically change our system while still honoring the parts of our system that are what most folks of lots of ideologies value. Mm -hmm. And so how do you get people to care about those? I'm not sure. And how do you get them done? Because those three things as a package would be very hard on both political parties. The major political parties would take a beating from those things. The, The sources of their power lie in in term, you know, these lengthy terms where people work their way up in terms of seniority and in all the money that it, that gets raised and in the duopoly, the fact that you have to choose one person or the other. And so um, it, it would take a big swipe at party control, which, again, is, I think, something that most Americans would agree is a good thing. I don't know. The only thing I'm concerned about that is if you do... You know, some of the systems that work, even some of the systems that don't have spending limits but have certain... Um, types of contribution limits, it's strict party control that keeps everything in line. I think there is an argument based on data and history that says campaign finance got out of control because the parties had less power, not more. 
because it became influence within the individual members and they could prop up their power as opposed to a party control that's based on coalitions um, instead of powerful individual leadership. I mean, there are part there are people inside, particularly in the Congress, that feel it's the it's the outsized growth of party leadership, not necessarily the party themselves. That's the problem. I think that's fair and true. I, what I mean is that the parties as they exist today is going to be very difficult for them to not see these as very threatening to the organization. It would force the parties to evolve. And I do think parties are going to be relevant under almost any system. It's not that you just don't need any parties. I think it's that you need a very different kind of purpose around the parties than they're serving today. So here's what I've been thinking about as I've been thinking about trying to solve this problem. And I acknowledge that I would need a constitutional amendment to make this work in light of existing Supreme Court jurisprudence. But I think that Spending limits is, should be the focus instead of contribution limits. And we should start a candidate for office, federal office, off with a specific number of publicly funded dollars, not tied to running with a particular party. Because I, I think someone like Mark Charles should have public financing even more than someone connected to a party. I think it's wrong that you have to run as a as a candidate for a certain party to get public dollars. So I would come up with some base amount, a low amount, but some amount that could get a campaign started for House, Senate, and President. And for House and Senate, I think you would have to come up with a base amount and then adjust it based on some kind of factor that acknowledges the reality that states are different sizes and there are different costs associated with things in different states. So I would have a base publicly financed beginning for a campaign. And then I would say you can raise any amount you want from any non-foreign source as long as all those dollars are disclosed down to individual contributions, but you can only spend up to a certain cap, and those caps would have to be set for House, Senate, and President and adjusted state by state, and then whatever gets raised over those caps goes back into the public financing system. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, 
It could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. I mean, I think that you... You can get the spending limits if you say we won't have disclosures on the contributions. But I think, I mean, are we waving a wand? Yeah, I think that's great. But here's something I was thinking about. You know, we took a we took a small break in between recording our the first part of our conversation on the podcast when you said, what am I supposed to do about the border? One of the things that happened is we had talked about Amazon Prime Day. I promise this is related to campaign finance. Just give me a second. Um... Amazon Prime Day on Instagram and someone messaged us and said, how, you know, how could you? They support border camps. Um, to support them is, you know, unacceptable because of the way they prop up the system. And I started thinking, like, how much of what we want to say and do is what we talk about with voting. It's not that we want our vote to matter, What people are often saying when they talk about that is, I want my vote to be dispositive. When we talk about these big issues, the immigration crisis, campaign finance, and we say, what can I do? We don't really mean what can I do? We mean, what can I do that will actually be dispositive? And in a democracy of 300 million people, often that's not much. Now, you and I have a unique opportunity to really do something dispositive, which is to dedicate our time, energy, and money inside our home state uh, by defeating Mitch McConnell in 2020. But, you know, I think there is a question here about what can we do about the flow of money in politics that has to go beyond what, what would be dispositive, right? So, I mean, I think that's a fantastic proposal. 
I think that we have to talk about what can we do now, either to get us closer to that, to make our voices heard on the system, that that can get us there. But that's not going to be dispositive. That might not change things now, 10 years, 20 years. But what can we do to address it? Well, let me push back on one aspect of of your thought there about the unreasonableness of my proposal or the lack of pragmatism surrounding it. Because for me, the compromise embedded in it is that I would just not worry about contribution limits. So if you are allowed for whatever office you're running for to spend $10 million and you can get all that from one person, hooray for you. And then you can be done and you can actually go to work and do your job every day. And so I think there are some incentives for lawmakers to do something like this. Now, can it be done before 2020? No. I don't know that much of anything could get done before 2020 that changes the shape of that race. And I don't know that it should because people are already in it. You know, we're already so far down the road. But I would like to see movement around a rethinking of all of this, starting with an amendment to the Constitution that allows us to rethink all of it. Yeah, but the middle the the amendment to the Constitution part is the what's so difficult. Absolutely. But that's why I think that that's the that's the place to start. Like expressing support for a constitutional amendment is an unusual thing. And I think there's it's good that there's momentum around let's overturn Citizens United via constitutional amendment. I would like to start thinking about what does that actually mean? Cuz Citizens United doesn't get to the full scope of the problem here. I definitely agree about being in Kentucky and recognizing that the most important thing we can do as Kentuckians is not send Mitch McConnell back to the Senate for a variety of reasons, not just related Mm -hmm. to campaign finance. But I do think his career as the spokesperson for unlimited amounts of undisclosed money in politics is a good enough reason. But the question is, what else can we do? I think that's another Important question. Besides, you know, in private conversation, public conversation with our representatives exhibiting support for a constitutional amendment. You know, as a Democrat, I have some choices. I have choices about who I can support in the presidential race, not just based on their policy positions um, with campaign finance, but those that are actually backing them up. Not surprising since her name's come up. Her name's been in my mouth a lot recently. But both Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are pledging not to do the high-dollar private donor events, which I think is a really positive move in the right direction. It says we see the influence game, and we're not going to participate in it. I think that's really good because, you know, it's what it's so hard to ex- to explain, or to, to explain is not the right word, to describe um, if you work in the United States Senate. It's not that when I worked there I saw this – you know, like I said, this sort of quick pro quo, I think people have in their mind or sort of this, this naked, I don't Now Listen, I didn't work in a Republican office, so I don't know what that looked like, but in the democratic office in an office that later had a big old trial for fraud and corruption eh, in an interesting twist. I didn't see that. What I did see was influence and what money buys you is influence. Not let me walk in and because I am who I am, you're going to do what I say. But because I gave you money and I am who I am, I get in the door in the first place. I don't meet with a staffer. I meet with a senator. And, you know, these high-dollar events, I was talk- Elizabeth Warren was talking about how she always has the, when she has a campaign event, she has it lit so she can see people's faces. And I connected with that, you know, just through the small amount of public speaking you and I have done, that 
because you can see people, right? You can see people nodding. And that's what she said. When the lights are down, I can't tell if what I'm saying is connecting. I can't tell. And I'm trying to look for feedback as much as I'm out there trying to share my plans. I want to hear if people think they will work. And I can't do that if I can't see their faces, if I can't see, oh, wait, this is not connecting with the room. Let me see if I can ask questions and figure out why, whatever. But that happens in those smaller events even more, right? If you're a Joe Biden you know, not to mention that you're getting recorded and then whatever you're saying to these people goes out on Twitter. So that's, it's probably just bad strategy, but you, you look in those people's eyes and they seem like nice people and they're so complimentary and they paid all this money to tell you what matters to them. And it probably really does matter to them. And it's probably a really good issue. And maybe they're very convincing and maybe half of them are lawyers to begin with. So they're, they're really convincing. And so they, they buy access to you. And with that access, they, exert influence and everybody thinks they're being a good person because there's no quid pro quo. But what happens is that people with interest, perhaps good people, perhaps good progressive people have are, are steering the ship and they're getting more say and they, and it's not equal representation because what that influence has bought them is better representation. And so I think you can support or refuse to support candidates that participate in that influence game. Um, that's a flawed. That's a flawed solution because again, you, you hate to hate the player and hate the game. And a lot of times, I mean, you need so much money to to fund campaigns. But at the same time, I mean, I just I don't see a lot of other ways to, you know, put forward a point of view and really try to move not just the conversation, but the system itself in a different direction. I struggle with the people who are only doing small dollar donations because a lot of times those donations are coming from folks who have much less disposable income than the high dollar people. And it feels unfair to me to ask people who are on limited incomes to support candidates. But I recognize that where we are in the system, there aren't a whole lot of good solutions right now. Um, I also think that the struggle with this, and this doesn't mean don't do anything, but influence takes a lot of forms. And I think any any system is going to have forms of influence where some people are going to get the meeting with the senator instead of a staffer, no matter what. There is a corrupting, maybe I'm making inadvertently making an argument for term limits here because there is a there is an aspect of just holding power, whether you are a corrupt person or not. There's an aspect of holding power that shifts the way you think about time and the way you think about where you're able to spend your time. And and I think it's all very difficult. And I want to have some grace for our representatives here in understanding that they they don't have longer days than the rest of us, and they have an unlimited amount of people who want access to them, and there are some tough decisions to be made. And we are very quick to villainize all of the things that happen in a system where power exists. So, you know, there there might be folks who contribute large sums of money and don't want something in return, but we paint them all with the same brush. And there are lobbyists who work truly to educate people, not just to... Um, corruptly bribe them into supporting legislation that benefits an industry. You know, there's there's nonprofit lobbying that is really important. Um, and we paint all of it with the same brush. And this whole area is so complex and nuanced, and we don't give it a whole lot of attention other than being disgusted by all of it. And so I think the more we educate ourselves so that we can think through these things 
and read articles and talk to our representatives in a more sophisticated way, I think that's an action that helps. Someone asked us, I think on Instagram, when we were asking people if they had any questions, if the two of us donate to campaigns ever. And the answer to that is yes, we both do with frequency. And I know that I've donated to both Democrats and Republicans. I think it's important. And I do think that that is a way to it it stinks to say like, well, participate in the system in order to change the system. But I do think that that's part of it. Yeah, I absolutely give. In fact, no, I'm not given to Republicans. <laughs> um, but I have given, I mean, I gave to Marion Williamson and Pete Buttigieg when it looked like they might not make, and Jill, Kirsten Gillibrand when it looked like they might not make it on the debate stage. Um, as of now, because of that, the policy of not having small donor donations and for a lot of other reasons, um, I'm giving a reoccurring donation to Elizabeth Warren, which I think is a really good way. It doesn't have to be a lot of money, but it's just the same thing for what we talk about with Patreon on the podcast. I mean, when you have a dependable source of income, it leaves a lot of pressure on a campaign. I think that's a, a choice to make, too. So, yeah, I mean, I absolutely like I get it. I ran for office. Not only do I donate to campaigns, I've asked for money for campaigns. And I've asked very rich people for big checks for my campaign because it's, you know, it's like you said, it's, it's the time aspect. If can I, I can spend two hours calling 20 people for $50 or I can call my one friend and get a check for a thousand dollars. Um, and so, you know, and I see the way that influence plays out even at a local level, not because anybody's like, Hey, demanding, but if somebody wrote you a check or holds a fundraiser, holds a fundraiser for you, first of all, they probably just as a function of doing that, especially holding a fundraiser for you, have your cell phone number. And so then they can call you and say, hey, here's my perspective on this. Whereas, you know, somebody else who didn't donate or, you know, they're not going to have that level of access to you just on an information level. And, you know, it just, it does, it just plays out that way. And I don't think spending limits are necessarily going to solve that totally and completely. Like you said, some people will have more access and influence than others, but to just, you know, keep up the status quo when almost none of us are happy with it and none of us are happy with the role money plays in our politics and none of, nobody is happy with the laws, um, being passed or not being passed to deal with big problems in the United States. I mean, I think people on both sides are frustrated with the lack of action on some, with some big problems in the United States. We might define those problems differently, but sort of the, the gridlock, I don't think anybody's happy with. So I think to continue this status quo while all of us with, with the full knowledge that none of us like it is lunacy. What's on your mind outside of politics, Sarah? I have been reading The Awakened Family. It's a really good book that has not only got me rethinking parenting, but I haven't read a book that's so well talked through the basics of sort of what do people mean when they say be more conscious? What do people mean when they say be in the present moment and how triggers have us have these big emotional reactions when really what's going on is we have feelings that we're not feeling. (laughs) She has this great quote where she says, the problem beneath all conflict in our lives and in the world is that we haven't been allowed to feel what we feel. I mean, I'm gonna be real with you. 
I can look at Donald Trump and say, you weren't allowed to feel what you feel. I see that now. I mean, I, that, that sounds true for me, for him. Um, so it's just got me thinking about, you know, a story I tell myself, which is, I don't remember, I have a bad memory, so I don't remember much from my childhood and sort of pushing against that and starting to think through what do I remember? Um, how can I think about that more carefully? Um, how can I work through some of that in therapy? And I don't know, it's just, it's got me feeling big feelings, thinking big thoughts and way, way, way beyond parenting, which I guess is a sign of a very, very good parenting book. Yeah, I definitely want to read it. That sounds great. I've been thinking about the practical applications of sort of meditation and mindfulness and a lot of the things that you were just talking through. Over the past week, like a bunch of things have really hurt my feelings. And having a label for why they hurt my feelings has prevented me from creating a lot of drama around them. Hmm. Because I've come to understand, oh, that's not what this person intended. It's hurting my feelings because it's pushing against this thing about me and the way that I feel respected or valued. They're not intending to disrespect me or devalue me in this way because this is their lens and here's mine. And just being able to step out of my feelings being hurt enough to figure out why to me is just an incredibly useful outgrowth of a lot of years trying to think about like being here in the present moment and being able to reflect on it. Definitely a set of school skills that I would like to give my children Well, I mean, that's her basic argument is that the reason we get so upset with our kids is because they're triggered. I mean, the parenting, when you're parenting, it's you're parenting yourself and they're just excellent triggers. They're very, very good for a lot of reasons um, at triggering all our sensitive spots at all our feelings that we don't really want to feel. And we think that we can control them and we think that they're here to meet our needs or we think here's what I really do, which is she says, you know, we tell ourselves that parenting is about sacrifice. And so then when our kids don't appreciate all our sacrifice, we get so mad, which I definitely do. But she was like, don't fool yourself. Parenting is an act of sacrifice. It's primarily an act of ego. You know, we have kids for a lot of very ego-driven reasons, and they're not here to meet our needs. Like, that's not, that is neither healthy for the child nor the parent. And just, you know, when, so when you're getting mad at them or you feel like you're losing, like something seems like the end of the world or you're afraid for their safety or their future or whatever, ask yourself, why? What about this feels so scary to me? Because it's not just, it's almost never about your kid. It's really about you. And I think that's true about whenever you bump into another person. Yeah, that's really good. You would like this book. It's very good. It's very, you. it's I read it, I'm like, oh, yeah, Beth would like this. (laughs) I've been thinking about a little tangential snippet from a podcast that you, I'm going to say, made me listen to, even though I Mm -hmm. am an adult with agency in the world. But being in relationship with you, there are not a lot of options when you put something in front of me. So um, (laughs) Sarah frequently sends me Ezra Klein podcasts to listen to, and there's usually something valuable in them. They are forever long, and they make Mm -hmm. me roll my eyes a lot. Okay, I'm mm-hmm, just going to be mm-hmm. honest with you about it. I'm not. I'm not unaware of how smug he can sound. This is not. A th- it's like it's not like I'm like blind to that. I just want to say that I'm fully aware. I just think it's worth it. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot for me. So anyway, I listened. I do the thing, 
And in the one that you recently sent me, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes, um, there was a little tangent about veganism. And Ezra Klein was saying that he is a vegan because he feels really strongly that in the future, people are going to look back at how we consume animal products and how we treat animals and factory farming and all of it and just be mystified and horrified at at what we have done. And I was listening and thinking about this, and this has come up for me a lot lately in a bunch of different contexts. I totally agree with that. I have absolutely no dispute with that whatsoever. And I think that if I were left to my own devices on Earth, like I didn't have a family I care about, I'm not married, I'm just a person in the world who's relatively unattached, that I would work hard to change my diet in that way. But what I am struggling with and and kind of the thing that I've been fascinated by as I've struggled with it is like, here are the competing priorities. One, I completely agree with him about this. Two, food is a huge part of connection to my roots for me. And it's one of the best sources of connection to my roots and one of the ways that I feel most like I have something in common with like people in my hometown and it's the happiest like attachment to my childhood. Um, when I tried to go vegetarian for a few months several years ago, it was very hard on my husband and very hard on my family. And I just have been thinking about like, how do you resolve competing priorities in a situation like that where you have this vehicle for connection with other humans that is kind of antithetical to what you would just in a vacuum decide about an issue? I've thought a lot about this um, because I was taught as a child that sugar was love. Um, Sugar was how we celebrated. Sugar was how we bonded. Sugar was how we connected with one another. Um, Sugar was a story we passed down. And I was starting to do that with my kids. Oh, something special happened. We'll go to ice cream or we're happy about this. Let's go celebrate with a cookie. And I would be lying to you if I said that still doesn't happen. So please don't take this to mean that I don't ever take my kids out for ice cream because that would be a lie. But I really have tried to take that apart because, you know, I think there's a lot of cultures, particularly Southern culture, that does a real disservice to the communities by the way they talk about food and the foods they eat and the stories they tell about those foods. It's not all bad, but some of it is. And like sort of just piecing that apart. And I think so often, you know, what was happening was the shared act of eating, not necessarily what we were eating. So I try to think through that as well. And I, you know, when we listened to it, my son was in the car and he was like, you know, he was like, that's so true. And I'm like, okay, well then, you know, we don't have to become vegetarians overnight. I mean, I was a vegetarian for five years, um, but I was single and I wasn't single. That's a lie. I was childless. I was married. (laughs) Um, And so I said, well, let's just start with, you know, we won't eat industrial meat in our home. We will get locally sourced meat for our food because we absolutely have the time and money to do that. The meat we eat at the grocery store is nothing more than a convenience of price and availability. And, you know, if it's important enough, it's like that. It's like what we're talking about with Amazon or with campaign finance. Like what we do doesn't necessarily be just positive, but if enough of us do it, it matters. Um, 
We've already, we've already been doing Meatless Monday and a couple other things. In fact, Nick Griffin's idea, which I thought was really good, was just have Meat Monday and every other day is Meatless Monday or Meatless. I mean, I just think you got to start small and until it doesn't feel like a big deal that you eat less meat because it's more expensive because you're getting it from a farm and you have to gather it. And sometimes you're out and you know what I mean? Like, I think you just have to start as opposed to everybody be vegetarian. I think you can find a way to prioritize it in smaller ways instead of prioritizing it in a zero sum way. I think a really big difference between you and me on this topic, though, is that cooking is a big part of my life and a big part of how I bonded with my family. Mm-hmm. So it's not just celebrating with sugar. I mean, I, I see your point there and agree with a lot of it. But it's also that, like, being in the kitchen together, and these are kind of our recipes. I mean, we have a family recipe book that my mom made for us a few years ago, and it's beautiful, and I cherish it. And I do think that the food itself carries a lot of memories that are really important to me. Um, A a lot of our family celebrations, it's just immediately obvious to me what to make because these are sort of the recipes of my people. And so I struggle with it. I really do. Um, I think there are some good tips in what you just shared and some good small steps I can take. And certainly I could, this doesn't have to be an all or nothing proposition, Mm -hmm. Um, but it, it does illustrate for me how in this instance, I feel two very strong competing sets of values. And that probably happens for all of us in many, many contexts. And I'm going to be thinking a lot more about how you decide to resolve those conflicts based on your priorities and how I'm going to do that for myself in other areas. Well, this was a long episode with lots of deep thoughts and big feelings. (laughs) I hope you stuck with us through all of it. The Congress has been very, very disrespectful of our schedule and has postponed the Mueller testimony to right before the Democratic debate, which I feel personally is just rude. I feel so sorry for all the political reporters who are basically not going to sleep for a week. Um, But be that as it may, we will not be here on Friday talking about the Mueller testimony because it's not happening until next week. But we will be back in your ears talking about the news, talking about those competing priorities as Americans, and we hope you'll join us for that. Also, if you liked this discussion, be on the lookout on Patreon for our July bonus episode where we're talking with a candidate in New York for Congress, Lauren Ashcraft, whose number one issue is campaign finance reform. So more on this on the bonus episode. We're also going to be sharing. And fascinatingly enough, she was also for term limits as a super progressive, which I thought was interesting. And we're going to be sharing some bloopers as well from our recordings because I know this will shock you, but we don't get things right every time the first time. And so uh, it'll be a fun bonus episode. Thank you again for joining us. We'll see you here Friday. Keep it new on Stone. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler.
Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.